Father, we come to you in prayer, thanking you for your amazing grace, thanking you for the armor of God, and asking that you would help us to understand this passage and its flow and its context and how it relates to our daily battle against the evil one. Help us on this day to learn about the shield of faith so that we could take it up in arms and defend every flaming arrow from the evil one. Bless the preaching of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I think about the shield of faith, I can't hardly help but to think about the men and women of the faith recorded for us in the Hall of Faith, what's known as Hebrews chapter 11. So turn there with me quickly, if you will. Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews chronicles a long list of godly men and women who have fought in the faith throughout biblical history. And at the end of that chapter in verse 32, Hebrews 11:32, we read this, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight." Now, as we read this passage on the Hall of Faith, and we read just those three verses, it kind of fires us up, doesn't it? You you start to think, well, if you just saw those three verses, you'd be like, man, I want to be in the Hall of Faith. I'll I'll fight that battle. I mean, look what they did. Through faith, they were conquering kingdoms. They were stopping the mouths of lions. They were escaping the edge of the sword. Like, I'll fight that battle. That's the kind of army I want to be in. But the next three verses say this, verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Anybody still want to sign up for this army? It's kind of like we see the first three verses and we're like, sign me up, Lord. I'm ready to fight. We read the next three verses and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What am I getting into? Not so sure this battle is for me. Being sawn in two, being flogged, being killed by the sword. I didn't sign up for that when I became a Christian to live by faith, you might be thinking. Then we read this, verse 38 to the end of the chapter, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Think what? They didn't receive, they're walking by faith. They didn't receive what was promised. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These last verses just remind us that it is not life on earth that we are promised, but it is eternal life in heaven. In other words, you may die a martyr's death in this world, but God's promise to you is not life in this world, but something better, eternal life, if you are in Christ. Walking by faith does not mean that you will escape all the trials of this world. Walking by faith does not mean you are guaranteed comfort in this life. Walking by faith means that you have eternal life in Christ. And come hell or high water, you will prevail in eternity through the Lord Jesus Christ. In this life, you might face great persecution even though you walk by faith. Such is the case with the English reformer, Roland Taylor. In five English reformers, J.C. Ryle comments on the martyrdom of one Roland Taylor. He was Uh, one of the Protestants during Bloody Mary's reign and persecution on Protestant believers. And between the years of 1555 and 1558, there were no less than 288 men and women who were burnt at the stake for their faith in Christ alone. The English reformers would not acknowledge that Jesus was re-crucified in the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation, and therefore they were killed in broad daylight except for the facts given by John Fox in his infamous uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, we know very little about 
Roland Taylor. The causes of this absence of information is easily explained. This devout man lived, labored, and died in a small country town 50 miles from London. It is the dwellers in large cities and the occupiers of metropolitan pulpits whose doings are chronicled by admirers and whose lives are carefully handed down to posterity. In his town of Hadley, Dr. Taylor was a good shepherd, abiding and dwelling among his sheep. He gave himself wholly to the study of Scripture, most faithfully endeavoring himself to to fulfill the charge that the Lord gave to Peter, saying, if you love me, feed my sheep. When persecution against the Protestants began, many of his parishioners urged Roland Taylor to flee. To that, Roland Taylor said the following, quote, What will ye have me do? I am now old and have already lived too long to see these terrible and most wicked days. Fly you and do as your conscience leadeth you. I am fully determined with God's grace to go to the bishop and tell him to his beard that he doth not. I believe before God that I shall never be able to do for my God such good service as I may do now. Close quote. Shortly thereafter, he was sent down from London, where he was convicted as a heretic, to his small town of Hadley, and to his great delight, he would be burned before the eyes of his parishioners. When he got within two miles of Hadley, the sheriff of Suffolk asked him how he felt God be praised, Master Sheriff, was his reply. Never better, for now I am almost at home. I lack but just two styles to go over, and I am even at my father's house. As he rode through the streets of the little town of Hadley, he found them to be lined with crowds of his parishioners who had heard of his approach and who came out of their houses to greet him with many tears and lamentations. To them, he made only one constant address, quote, I have preached to you God's word and truth, and I have come this day to seal it with my blood, close quote. On coming to Aldham Common, where he was to suffer, they told him where he was. He then said, thanks God, I am even at home. When he was stripped to his shirt and ready for the stake, he said with a loud voice, Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word and those lessons that I have taken out of the Bible, and I am come hither to seal it with my blood. He would probably have said more, but like all of the other martyrs, he was strictly strictly forbidden to speak and even now was struck violently on the head for saying these few words. He then knelt down and prayed a poor woman of the parish insisting in spite of every effort to prevent her in kneeling down with him. After this, he was chained to the stake and repeating the 51st Psalm and crying to God, merciful Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, receive my soul into thy hands. He stood quietly amidst the flames without crying or moving till one of the guards dashed out his brains with a halberd. And so this good old Suffolk incumbent passed away. Well, my friends, Roland Taylor was a man of faith. He was a man who did not make it to the end of of an old age dying of natural causes. He was a man who was martyred because of his faith. But he had put his hope in God. He had walked in a manner consistent with that of a man who had been transformed from the inside out. He did not live a life of fear. He lived a life of faith. Living a life of faith does not mean that there will be no problems. And living a life of faith does not mean that there will be no failures. And living a life of faith does not mean that you will have a comfortable life. And living a life of faith does not mean that your life cannot be taken from you at any moment. Rather, living a life of faith means that you are not looking to be rewarded in this world, but in the world to come. Living a life of faith means that you believe in the promises of God so much so that when you are tempted and tried, you stand true to your faith. And when the fiery darts come 
and you feel like giving in, you stand firm, you step up to the battle, and you defend yourself with the shield of faith. You may be tempted, you may have weak moments, you may be mocked, you may be flogged, you may be put in chains and imprisonment, you may be tortured, you may even be killed. But you will receive something better than this world as you enter into the place that God has prepared for you, as he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. you got a choice to make. You can live for the pleasures of this world, or you can live for the pleasures of heaven. And the Bible tells us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where thieves can't break in and steal, and where uh, rust and and moths can't destroy. That's living a life of faith. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, if the gospel you believe is not worth dying for, then it's not worth living for either. Are you living a faithful life for the Lord Jesus Christ? And I want to frame this message on the shield of faith by using three headings. First, let's look at this description of the shield. And so if you're taking notes, your first blank there is under that main heading number one. And let's talk for a little bit about the shield used by the Roman army. In the Roman army, there were two types of shields used by the soldiers. There was the smaller circular or round shield, which was measured to be about two feet in diameter, and it would be strapped onto the left arm. And this would be the shield that would be used once you're in hand-to-hand combat, freeing up the right hand in order to be able to fight with your sword and defend yourself with the smaller shield. But there's another shield used by the Roman soldiers, and the word for this shield is the word in our text, and it would be a larger shield. It would require at many times both hands in order to lift up this shield and to place it in front of you. This word shield is used 80 times in the Bible, but only here in the New Testament. The one lone place in all the New Testament is this very verse. It's the word thurios, which literally translated would be the word door. This larger shield was about the size of a small door, running about two feet wide and about four to four and a half feet high. Church father Polybius described this shield as having a convex surface. So if I'm holding the shield this way, it's a little bit rounded facing out towards the enemy. And this convex surface uh, was, was about the width of a man's hand in breadth. It actually was constructed of two blanks of wood glued together with the outer surface covered with a canvas and leather made from cowhide. There was metal on top and bottom on the edges to protect the wood, and when it hit the ground, and the center of it would be able to defend through this iron boss, causing most stones and heavy arrows to glance off. This larger shield could easily cover the whole person as one would advance in the art of war. This kind of shield was especially designed for those on the front lines. Many times there would be archers and other warriors using varied tactics who would be behind the soldiers who were up front carrying these large door-shaped shields. And as the two sides of the conflict would oppose one another, archers would shoot their fiery arrows, and there would be ancient cannons that would fire away flaming darts and other flying objects at the enemy. And the shield was used to deflect and to extinguish the onslaught of weaponry. If a soldier does not take up a shield to defend himself, then he is obviously left defenseless. And while he might have on the breastplate of righteousness to overcome the weapons of the arrows and the other flying objects, he must use a shield. It would be better for you to be on the back line than to be on the front line if you do not have a shield. A soldier may occupy a strategic place in the battle, but without taking up a shield, he has left himself vulnerable. A soldier without a shield is like a turtle without a shell. He is exposed, and he will soon be defeated. He will become a casualty of war. Any soldier who has not taken up his shield is left unprotected, unguarded, and is an easy target for the enemy. But on the other hand... The soldier who has taken up his shield, regardless of the attack that is raised up against him, will stand 
invincible. He will stand indestructible because of the strength of the shield. He will be able to advance and inflict a mighty blow on the enemy because he has been shielded from injury, from trauma, and from lacerations. The shield is the difference between victory and defeat. It is the difference between winning the battle and losing the battle. It is the difference between life and death. It is the difference between having your body sent home in a box or returning home to greet your family again. A good shield promotes safety, security, and longevity to the warrior. A good shield not only protects the soldier of war, but gives him confidence to stand and advance in the battle. My friends, the same is true of the Christian life. If you do not take up the shield of faith, you will be in the direct line of the enemy's arrows and you will be shot through the heart. You cannot make it in the Christian life without the shield of faith. You will be defeated in spiritual battle. If you do not take up the shield of faith, you are surrendering your fight to the devil and you will become a prisoner of war. That is why it's so important that We make sure we understand exactly what Paul is talking about in this text on spiritual warfare as we implement these truths to our lives. And so before I get into exactly what this shield of faith is, I think it would be encouraging for you to to know that this word shield is used, I told you, 80 times in the Bible, 79 times in the Old Testament. And so your next blank says this, the shield used is an image of God's protection. That's right. In the Old Testament, God himself is your shield. It is used over and over and over again to give us the imagery of God himself being our protector. Let me just read a couple of them to you. Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Deuteronomy 33:29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. Second Samuel 22:31, written by David after he had struggled with Absalom and Joab and the rebellion of Sheba, he writes this, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You have given me the shield of your salvation. We read all over the Psalms, Psalm 3, 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 5, 12, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 710, my shield is with God. And you can read on and on as there's many listed for you there to do in your own maybe personal quiet time that God is our shield. And so when Paul uses the word shield in the New Testament, considering the fact it's only used 79 times already, and this is the only place in the entire New Testament where it's used, would certainly elicit the vision and the idea of God being the protector of Israel. In the same way, God, through faith, is our protector against the enemy. God is our rock. He is our fortress. God is our strength. God is our shield. And you cannot make it in this world without the protection and the provision of our great God. He will not leave you helpless or defenseless. He will not abandon you in trouble or forsake you during trials. No matter what you're up against today, he will move heaven and earth to cause the storm to be calmed and the sun to be stilled for as long as it takes to do his work in you. And it comes with the shield of faith. Don't forget Paul prayed earlier, even in this epistle in Ephesians 3, that we're to stand firm through faith, that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith to give us the strength that we can know and comprehend what is the breadth and what is the length and what is the height and what is the depth of the love of Christ. So it's by faith that we fight this fight. Not only this, one other thing I want you to see, which is C in your outline there, the shield used by the soldiers of the Lord. This shield is used by the soldiers of the Lord. The army, or excuse me, the armor of God here in Ephesians 6 is broken into two sets of three. We've already looked at the first set of three when we talked about the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes uh, that, 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 that we wear of the gospel. And these three pieces of armor are something that you actually strap on your body. Whereas the second three pieces of armor which we're looking at today, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit are to be taken up 
into battle. Let me explain it this way. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this. He writes, The first three parts of the armor are firmly fixed to the body by this special fastening so that they are immovable. But with the next three, there is an obvious difference. You do not fix the shield on your body, not those bigger shields that we're talking about. It is something separate from you. You take it up and you use it, but it is not attached to your body. The same applies to the helmet, which was more like a cap that was put on the head and taken off quite easily. And the sword is clearly not a part of us, but a thing that we take up and use when the need arises. And so we see here in the text a little bit of a separation between the first three pieces of armor, something that you literally have strapped on you and they never come off. These last three pieces of armor are something that you take up when the call comes. In fact, if you even look at the grammar there in verse 14, it says, having fastened on the belt of truth, Again in 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again in verse 15, having put on. So there we have three times in a row the idea of having put on. Now the verb changes to take up. And in verse 16, the verb says take up the shield. And in verse 17, it says take up the helmet of salvation. And it's inferred also take up the sword of the spirit. And so we're moving from having put on to now it is time to take up. And so Lloyd-Jones continues in this description between the two sets of three pieces of armor. He says a further difference is that the first three portions are more or less passive than and preparatory. The soldier puts them on and keeps them on. But when you come to the second group, there is a suggestion of immediate activity. The soldier may be sitting down in his room, in the barracks, and taking a period of rest, but he still keeps on his girdle of truth, his breastplate, and his sandals. Then, suddenly, an alarm is given, and the enemy is already attacking, and he immediately takes hold of his shield and his sword, and he puts on his helmet, and he rushes out. There is a suggestion of activity, of an actual fight and battle. You do not have the shield in your hand when you are resting, you put it down and likewise your sword. But at the moment that the enemy becomes active again and there is an engagement, you have to take up these things in order that you may be ready for the conflict. So I appreciate the distinction between the two sets of armor. I think it's valid. Also in verse 16, I want to take notice of the word you. In the middle of the verse, it says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The word you there is in second person plural. It is not a singular you. It is a plural you. And you need to know that these shields were constructed and designed in such a way that they sort of hooked together so that you could stand side by side with another soldier in the theater of war. In fact, an entire army line could then function like an impenetrable wall advancing forward. This is what we call a phalanx in military science, referring to the tactical formation consisting of a block of heavily armed infantry standing shoulder to shoulder in files several ranks deep. Fully developed earlier by the Greeks, this type of war strategy was also adopted and implemented by the Roman soldiers. And so with shields linked together, the Romans could also make a human ramp once they reached the enemy's wall and thereby allowing soldiers to overtake the battle stations of their opponents by climbing up the ramp of these human-made shields that they're walking on and jump over the wall of the enemy fortress. I think such is a great reminder that we are not alone in this battle, that we all have a shield of faith if you're in Christ and you're able to link your shield up shoulder to shoulder and arm to arm to form an impenetrable wall that Satan cannot traverse. The reminder has already been given to us by Pastor Steve in the video that no temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. You will not go down when you're linked up arm in arm with the faith of the Lord together with your brothers and sisters. We're reminded of this in 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him talking about the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that these same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not the only one in the fight. You are not the only one in the battle. Don't be a lone ranger. Be connected, be linked up, so that at church we could link arms and fight together, shoulder to shoulder, back to back, defending one another, fighting for each other, and protecting each other from the flaming arrows of the evil one. Ministry by ministry, Small group by small group, 
person by person, conversation by conversation. We need to have each other's back and join in the fight. This means that we need to be involved in the opportunities that we have to train for battle, whether it be equipping hour or women's Bible study or a men's study or retreat, or whether it's just being a part of an of a, of a Ironman study group, or whether you just have honest conversations with other believers in this church that we were being trained and we're being ready to link up our shields of faith, that as a Placerita Bible church, that we fight against the enemy with our shields linked together. Let me move on to our second heading this morning. Number two, let's now get into the nitty-gritty of this definition of faith. What exactly are we talking about here? Well, as with each piece of armor, there is this debate or discussion whether Paul is referring to an objective piece of armor, uh, objective piece of armor, or a subjective piece of armor. In other words, is he referring to the faith once and all delivered to the saints, that is, saving faith? Or is he referring to a sanctifying faith, that as we believe and trust in God on a daily basis, we fight with that kind of faith. Is this faith to refer to the whole body of Christian doctrine? Or is this faith referring to that which is put into practice as you walk by faith? And I think my answer to the question, if you haven't heard it already, is that it's an unhealthy distinction to try to divorce objective truth from the subjective application of that truth in day-to-day battle. You can't really have one without the other. You cannot separate a new life through a changed life. You cannot separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy. One leads into the other and neither exists without the other. Systematic theology leads into practical theology. Biblical preaching leads into biblical counseling. Evangelism flows into discipleship. Church membership gives way into church service in the local body. And so what I'm saying is that faith is simply a complete trust and confidence in God. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he would do. Faith is not something that you conjure up within you. You know, the statement that's so popular in our culture, well, you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith in faith. Just believe. And if you just believe, you'll make it through. That's garbage. You got to have faith in an object. In this sense, it's faith in God. And if you put your faith in any other object, then you're going down and you will be let down because no other person, no other being in the universe other than almighty God is able to defend you against the foe that we fight against. And so we've got to realize that we must have basic faith in God. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. Well, let me give you a couple of companions. Can I do that? A couple of companions to faith. The first one would be your next blank here, hope a hope that is sure. If you want one passage in the Bible that's known as the famous definition of faith, it's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Why don't you turn there with me? Because it's the, the one marquee verse here that defines faith biblically. We've already been there in the hall of faith later, but in verse 1, it gives us a very clear definition that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, that's what faith is. It is a hope that is assured. Hope here is not a whimsical desire. In other words, it's not, it's not a variable. I hope it might rain today. I hope we get home on time. I hope the Dodgers win the World Series. Right, that, might not, that might happen, it might not. I don't have a whole lot of faith in that happening. But I know the Giants are going down, baby. They're going down this year. But the idea is that we, those things may happen, they may not. But this kind of hope is different than the way we use it in our vernacular. All right, this kind of hope is talking about Hope and constant character, the constant character of God. It's what the psalmist says when he says, Why so downcast, O my soul, and why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. Psalm 71.5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust. In fact, we've already read in Romans 5, verse 2, Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope. We're starting to see, again, the connection between faith and hope. They, they work together. They're synonymous in many ways. While they have distinct differences, they're used as companions in order to believe in that which you cannot see, which really leads us to our next part of faith here. The idea is it's a conviction. It's a conviction that is by faith and not by sight. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 says that basically we have a hope 
that we cannot see. And so here, as we now talk about a conviction, we're talking about something we cannot see. Isn't that what Hebrews 11.1 1 continues to say? Not only is faith the assurance of things hoped for, but it's also what? The conviction of things not seen. Now, typically, when we use the word conviction, again, in the vernacular, we think of it as, well, I've got to fight for my convictions. Right? I'm not going to do that because I have a conviction to stand firm. And that would be an appropriate use. But the point of why you stand firm with that conviction is because you know what's going to happen if you give in. You're convicted knowing what God says about sin and temptation and what God says about your true joy and happiness being found in him, that the conviction that you have is the way that you live based on what you can't even see. But just what you know the Bible teaches, it's a conviction that runs deep in your soul, deep in your gut, that you don't have to have your mama there telling you not to do it. You don't have to be worried that someone else may find out. You just stand firm because there's a conviction that you know what God says about what you're being faced with. 2 Corinthians 4, 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. This is what faith is. It's not by faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight. It's that we believe, we have a conviction that God will do what he said he will do. And you you believe so much in God and in the truth of his word that you will do the right thing when no one else is around you because you have conviction. Sometimes I define conviction as what you do when nobody else is watching. Conviction is what you do when nobody else is watching. And it's based on because you know God is watching. You know he knows what's going on, and because you have faith that he is true to his word, you live in light of that this day during this temptation to stand firm by faith or by conviction. A third companion to faith is obedience. If you have faith, then you will obey the word of God. If you don't have faith in God, you're not going to do what he says. And certainly this is illustrated by Joshua in the battle of Jericho when God told him to do something that wasn't necessarily known as being military savvy. He told him to march around the city of Jericho one time each day for six days and on the seventh day to march around it seven times and to blow the trumpet and give a shout and the city will be given into your hands. Joshua could have easily said like, are you kidding me? I am not about to obey this command of the Lord because that's just nuts. And we are the same way at so many times. God's word says clearly how to live life and we just think, are you kidding me? I'm not going to do that. Submit to an unloving husband No way. Love my wife like Christ loved the church? You don't understand how evil she is. Raise my kids to walk with the Lord, to discipline them in love? You know how hard that is to discipline a child? I mean, sometimes it's either like we get disciplined happy or it's been like days and weeks since we disciplined at all. The idea is that we have to have faith in obeying and doing what God's word says. Talking about discipline little kids. I just, yesterday we were having a family devotion and we were talking about Christ and we're talking about the Jerusalem council of Acts 15 and what the gospel really is. And I'm trying to get this through to my older kids. And my little daughter comes up to me, she's three years old and she pulls on my arm and she says, daddy, daddy. And I'm like, yes, Zoe. She said, did Jesus die even for the little people? I said, yes, Zoe, Jesus died even for the little people. You know, it's just having faith in your home that as you're constantly pointing your kids to Christ, that somewhere, somehow, they finally start to get it. But you're going to be obedient to be a spiritual-minded mom and dad in your home, even when you think it's not getting through to your kids. It's just obeying simply what the Word of God says. That's having faith. Faith is having, fourthly, a confidence in the name of the Lord of hosts. You have confidence in God. I love the story of David and Goliath, where he was outnumbered, right, with the idea of the size and the sheer prowess of this giant. And yet we read in 1 Samuel 17, 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's faith, my friend. He had faith that God had delivered him from the paw of the bear, And from the mouth of the lion, that he would also deliver him from this Philistine. And so he was able to step out, not in a wimpy way, not in an apologetic way. He was able to stand out with confidence, not with arrogance, but with confidence in his great God. And let me just ask you, are you living confidently today? Are you consistently resting in the strength of God's might? 
A fifth companion of faith is this, a testing which proves our faith is in God. Gideon had the story of taking 32,000 people into battle to conquer Midian, and God said, oh, hold on, buddy, you got too many. If anybody's afraid, tell them to go home. So 22,000 people went home. That left him with 10,000. Then he told him to go down to the brook and drink, and then he separated another 9,700 that were sent home, leaving Gideon with how many? 300 men. That's faith, that you're gonna, your, your faith is being tested. Do I really trust God, or am I trusting in my own might? This is what 1 Peter says, right, in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, your faith is tested, just like gold is purified in the fire and the impurities are taken off, but gold can still be burned up. But your faith is more precious than pure gold. If it's God-given faith, it will not be overcome with any fire. So no matter how hard the marriage is, no matter how difficult your workmate is, no matter how difficult it is to, to pay the bills and to be faithful with your budget, God will take care of you. If you're faithful to walk by faith, he's testing you to build in you endurance and dependence upon him. You can make it through. You will survive. In Christ, you will prevail. In his strength, you are victorious. By faith, you will fortify your position and fight until Christ comes to take you home. A third heading I want us to see, and lastly, is the defense against the flaming arrows. A defense against the flaming arrows. We see here, if there are many companions of faith, certainly there are enemies of faith as well. First of all, let me just say that the term for darts in the ESV or arrows in the NESB is a broad term which can refer to any pointed missile-like weapon. In addition to referring to an arrow or a dart, it can refer to an oncoming sword, spear, or javelin. Most spears or javelins were seven feet long and had a sharp point made out of iron. These particular weapons had a killing range of about 30 yards when they were hurled, the tempered blade would sink into the shield and the soft shank would bend, making the shield difficult to handle. In addition to that, arrows on, uh, could, could be aimed and shot from a much further distance. And these arrows would often be dipped in pitch and in some type of tar and ignited and shot out with a blazing goal of incinerating their objects. And needless to say, this wasn't friendly fire. This was fire aimed to kill and to burn down the enemy. For look at verse 16. These are the flaming darts of the evil one. That's who's shooting at you. It's the devil himself. These fiery arrows are nothing less than temptation from the devil. The word evil means corrupt, villainous, malicious, sinister, monstrous, heinous, malignant, and vile. This word evil is describing the devil himself, of which Jesus says to the unbelieving Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. This evil one is the same one Jesus talks about in John 10.10 when he says the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And it's almost as if Paul is saying in this Ephesians 6, 16, sober up and don't forget who we're fighting against. He hasn't mentioned anything about the devil in a few verses. And so he says, hey, don't forget, this is coming from the evil one. So you better have faith in order to defend yourself. You better have faith in, in those that would defend themselves in real battle from these fiery arrows. Soldiers were known to dip their shields in water or to rub on them a type of retardant against fire. The word extinguish means to quench. It means to put out. And so the idea here is that with this shield of faith, you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not just some. It just takes one arrow to knock you out. This says that we're able to extinguish all the flaming arrows. And so let's talk about a few of these arrows that Satan is shooting in your direction. Maybe the first one for you could be unbelief. So we're called to resist unbelief with God-given faith. The whole test of Job is a test of God-given faith. God says that he gave Job faith to believe, even if everything was taken away. Satan says, 
not on your life. If you remove the hedge of protection around him, Satan said to God, he'll curse you to your face. And so in chapter one, God says, go ahead, just don't touch his body. Satan takes away all of his possessions and all of his family, and Job stands firm. Chapter two is about when Satan comes to God, and God said, in essence, I told you he would stand firm, and Satan said, skin for skin. You let me touch his body. And so God then said, you can touch his body, just don't take his life. And so then Job was smoked with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his, of his soul. He was, he was in a very difficult, physical, torturous situation. And yet in the midst of, of that situation, we understand in talking with his wife, he took a, he, he's having a conversation with her. And in Job 2.9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not send with his lips. You know what? Job still believed. He believed as that his Redeemer lived. He believed that he would prevail even though everything was taken away, even his physical comfort. He proved to us once and for all, God did, through this example of Job, that God-given faith cannot be surmounted by unbelief. But the Satan, the accuser of the brethren, will cause you to doubt your salvation and to doubt the sufficiency of the word of God and to doubt the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ to where you might begin to think in something else. And this is where, number two, false teachers come in. When we begin to doubt God, what God says, then we're contending with false teachers against those who were coming against the faith that was once and all delivered to the saints. And in the book of Jude, one chapter, we're taught about false teaching that was coming into the church. And let me just say today, I don't believe that our biggest fight against false teaching is in organized religion. I think that our biggest fight against false teaching is in the medium of the world and the culture that we live in. Few people today are going to follow some wacko person who's giving radical false teaching into their cult. I mean, it does happen, but I'm just saying, by and large, the masses of people are fighting a false teaching that's really coming in through just the way our culture and our cultural norms are going downhill to where you can talk to normal people about what's going on in their life, even people in church who say they love Christ, and yet they themselves are functioning as a, a more of a casual false teacher. This is why he says in Job 4, it's only one chapter, so Job 1 verse 4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. You can take that one verse. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. What is that saying? That's saying people are saying you can commit sensual, immoral sin any way you want, and you still got the grace of God. And the Bible says, well, that may be true because we all sin in various ways. We must repent and turn from our sin of any unbiblical amount or style or category and turn to Christ. Otherwise, churches left and right are buying this lie and spreading it amongst themselves where almost every major denomination in America has gone completely liberal to accept an agenda that embraces perversion of grace because of sensuality. He goes on in the rest of Jude saying that these people are relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. That's what they're doing. They're blaspheming Christians. They're blaspheming the gospel by embracing this. They are hidden reefs in our love feast. They are waterless clouds. And so the idea is that we got to fight a faithful adherence to the gospel in order to overcome this false teaching that's so rampant in our culture. Another flaming arrow is the arrow of fear. Fear. The opposite of faith in many texts would be fear. Fight against your fears with a trusting faith. The idea of Matthew 6 is don't be anxious about tomorrow, but rather seek first the kingdom of God. So the idea is don't live by fear, being anxious about tomorrow, but live by faith, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Fear versus faith is again seen on display in Matthew 8, 
when the great storm came upon the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are fearful for their lives and yet Jesus is asleep. And so they go and awake him and they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to him, he, he, he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Fear or faith? How do we live and approach life? The Bible says, don't have fear for the people of this world. But he says, fear those, uh, don't, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, we need to confess our fear of man, our fear of what people think about us, our fear of what we think what we think people think about what we do with our time and our money and our dress and our entertainment. While we certainly want to hold each other accountable in those areas of liberty, we can't be living based on fear about what someone else thinks. And as soon as you allow those arrows to come in and pierce your heart, you have no confidence in the word of God because now all you're concerned about is are you living up to someone else's standard of how they think that you should be living your life? And so we've got to understand this fear is rampant. I'm not talking about fear like I'm just afraid of the boogeyman. I'm talking about we fear what other people think about us. And we've got to stand firm. We're living by fear. We should be living by faith. Number four, abandon foolishness by building your house on the bedrock of faith. Another arrow I believe Satan is using is materialism, calling us to to make a little more money and build a little bigger house or whatever it may be as the means of your joy and as the means of your fulfillment in life. It's a lie. It's building it on sand. And when the storm comes, if your hope is in your money or your material possessions, you're going down. But instead, we're called to build our house on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so do not be overcome with keeping up with the Joneses. It's all right to have a little less. In fact, you don't need to be making more money You need to be more satisfied in Jesus. You don't need more. You simply need to be content with less. And that only comes from having a perspective of that which really matters, which money cannot buy. So don't be giving in to this lie of this arrow of materialism. How about the last one? It's just terminate temptation with faith-filled scripture. Temptation, we're already talking about all these are temptations, really. Here, I'm thinking a little bit about the fact that Jesus himself was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil three times, and yet all three times he took the word of God and defended his position using the word of God. We know that we are called to mortify the flesh and that we're called to walk by the Spirit. That's what God has called us to do. And so next time you're being tempted, young man, whether it be with pornography, young lady, whether it be with dressing immodestly, whether it be using your time or your money or conversation in a certain way that would dishonor Christ, then you beware that the temptation is right there upon you and you have the opportunity to duck behind the shield of faith and to resist and extinguish that flaming arrow. You know what? Our hearts, one commentator said, are like thatched roofs. All it takes is one arrow And it will consume our heart and it will burn your life to the ground. And yet we have an opportunity to douse our shield in the water of God's word. And to rub on our shield the resin and the oil and the retardant of God's truth. So that when these arrows come, we can stand our ground. If you're here today and you're not in Christ and you don't have a shield of faith, then it is not the arrow of the devil that I fear for you. But it is the arrow of God's wrath. If you're here and you don't know Christ, don't fear the devil. Fear God. I call you this day to repent, to turn from your sin and your wayward life, and turn to Christ. Realize that you have come to the end of your rope. You are fighting on the wrong side relinquish your lusts, come to Christ who loves you, who demonstrated his love to die for you. What king would give up his throne and die a criminal's death so that you could be saved? So this day I'm saying this message for you is turn from your sin and turn to the Savior Jesus Christ and take up for the very first time this shield of faith. Don't believe in what you can see. Believe in what you cannot see. Ask God to open your eyes so you can see. If you're a Christian today 
and you're walking by faith and you already have on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and you have had your shoes fitted out with the readiness of the gospel of peace and I call you in this take home section to answer these questions are you taking up the shield of faith and using it in battle are you on a daily basis employing the shield of faith or are you fighting in your own strength Are you coasting on yesteryear's glory in your life? Or are you daily coming to the Word of God and living out the Word of God? Number two, is your faith surrounded by the companions of hope, conviction, obedience, confidence, and testing? Are are, are you doing it alone? Are you expecting God to somehow give you something because you've been a little bit faithful? Or are you realizing that you might even still die as a martyr? You might go through great tumultuous persecution You may be in a very hard spot, but faith is not being delivered out of that spot. Faith is having hope and conviction and obedience and confidence and being willing to be tested even in the midst of it because you know ultimately God prevails. Lastly, how do you go about in your life extinguishing all the flaming darts of the evil one? Again, it just takes one arrow. You could be doing good in the purity area, good with the abstaining from being drunk area, good in the we give part of our money to the the Lord area. But how are you doing maybe in your heart? How are you doing with your anger? How are you doing with your worry? How are you doing with, with just being humble and trusting God that day by day, moment by moment, as a Christian, you stand firm and you gird up your loins, you put on the breastplate, You have your shoes of the gospel, and now you're taking up your shield of faith. The call is that this is the evil day. The trumpet has been blasted already. It's time to stand and defend ourselves from the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word and to experience the truth of Scripture as we've looked at many varied text this morning that will remind us, first of all, that God, you are our shield. We thank you that you are a strong tower, that the righteous will run into it and they are saved. God, we, may we see you as that shield and just be blessed by that truth. And God, may we take up that shield of faith this day, salvation in you, sanctification strengthened by your might, that we could extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. God, would you be with us today as we consider these things, as we discuss these truths in our homes and in our small groups and with our friends, God, that you would prove to us how faithful you are and we would walk in confidence, bearing up the shield of faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.